Hi, I'm Dave from Mount Pleasant, Michigan. I'm Holly from Chicago. I'm Josh from Litchfield Park, Arizona. Sound of Young America is produced independently and supported by listeners like you and me. You should support the show like I did. Just visit MaximumFun.org slash donate. I'm Jesse Thorne. Live on tape from my house in Los Angeles, it's the Sound of Young America from MaximumFun.org and PRI, Public Radio International. Welcome to the Sound of Young America. I'm your host, Jesse Thorne. So for the past three years, we've been putting on this, this really odd event in the mountains outside of Los Angeles. We all troop up to this place called Lake Arrowhead that in the 1920s and 30s was a sort of she-she mountain resort for Hollywood types, but since it's become kind of a, a sleepy vacation community. We go into this conference center that's also a summer camp for kids from UCLA. Um, it, it's sort of halfway in between Mountain Chalet or, or Hunting Lodge and, you know, the movie Meatballs. It's a really remarkable place. I mean, I, I conceived it as a sort of half comedy festival, half creativity conference. And what I found the first year that I did it the, is that what's really amazing about it isn't so much the content, although the content is amazing, it's, it's the community. A- every comedian who stepped up to the stage during our big Saturday night stand-up show had something to say like uh, this from Graham Clark. This is fantastic. I've never been to anything like this ever before. Like, I've never uh, been somewhere with this beard where so few people have, uh, like, moved to another table or whatever. Like, it's just... Or this, from Greg Barrett. I know we're not in a circle, but I, I do feel safe here. It's also a place where even the most ridiculous performance is embraced. Like Andy Daly as the veteran road comic Jerry O'Hearn, who had this to say about Max FunCon. Well, this place is interesting, huh? This place is like uh, somebody said, hey, let's try it this way, see if it works. On this show of highlights from Max FunCon, we'll have a bunch of great comedy. We'll also have some really great stuff from some of our speakers. One of them was Brooke Gladstone, who, as a public radio listener, you probably know as the host of On the Media. She gave a really remarkable and fascinating talk about her career, how she got engaged in media criticism, and the state of the media as it stands right now. We'll also hear a little bit of a conversation between John Hodgman, who's a regular guest at Max FunCon. You might know him as the PC from the Mac versus PC commercials or as a best-selling author or, uh, gosh, he's on Bored to Death on HBO. Uh, he's on The Daily Show. Um, John Hodgman's conversation with Lee Unkrich, who won an Oscar last year for his direction of the beautiful and, and brilliant Toy Story 3. They had a great conversation about what you don't know Max FunCon is, at least in part, a celebration of comedy. This year, we had the Upright Citizens Brigade performing their brilliant improvised show, Ass Cat, which, uh, I have to say, doesn't make any sense on the radio, so we won't be playing any of that. We also have a big stand-up comedy night on Saturday. Let's go to the host of our stand-up comedy night. He's also the host of one of MaximumFun.org's most popular podcasts called Stop Podcasting Yourself. He's a veteran stand-up comedian in Canada. He lives in Vancouver, and, and I, think, <laughs> I think it's important for you to understand, uh, to place this clip in context, that he has 
a beard that could be described as majestic could also be described as sublime could also be described as homeless like uh, a really gargantuan beard even for vancouver um he also is a little bit roly-poly but in a charming way in a charming way anyway let's go to the stage of our outdoor amphitheater and stand-up comedian grant clark this is fantastic i've never been to anything like this ever before like i've never uh been somewhere with this beard where so few people have uh like moved to another table or whatever like it's just like it's just a really affectionate warm group of people and uh i've had this beard for a while i don't have a job um so i've had this uh, you have to have time and uh like not worry about or whatever uh like you just gotta like nah, i don't care um and uh to grow something that's like crazy big on your face and um two things have changed uh since i've grown the beard uh first sleeping in public is out that's out no more sleeping in public second automatic uh speechless kinship with homeless people like, I'll be walking down the street and somebody will be panhandling and asking, like, hey, you got some spare change, you got some spare change, and I'll walk past, silence, right? <laughs> Just kind of like a real understanding look, like, all right. Looks like somebody got himself a hat. Pretty <laughs> good. Yeah? This has been so fun. Um... And it's great. The food's been amazing, too, right? How good is the food? Holy <laughs> sh- And it's, like, it's good. Like, I'm, I'm, a, uh, I'm a vegetarian, and so uh, usually, like, whenever you're, like, go to a thing like this and you're vegetarian, it's like, I hope you... Do you like bread rolls? Like, how many bread rolls can you eat? <laughs> but there's actually been, like, delicious food to eat. And I know, like, I don't, like, look like a vegetarian. Like, <laughs> I think you're doing it wrong, dude. And, <laughs> you know? Um, and uh, it's weird because I ride the bus that's my mode of transportation in the city I don't know if anybody else rides the bus but yeah I think if you can do it if it's feasible for you to do it it's the right thing to do and I feel like I'm making the right choice by doing it and I also feel like I'm being talked down to by the bus for making that decision right because I don't know if everybody knows, but uh, what type of advertising you receive on the bus is like a direct relation to where you are, like I- inside or outside the bus, that's the type of ads you receive. Like if you're outside the bus, all the ads are like, hey, why don't you go to a nice new restaurant or uh, go to this casino or go to Mexico, you deserve it. Right? But if you're inside the bus, all the ads are like... Ugh. Not too late to go back to school. (laughs) Are you pregnant and scared? (laughs) Goodness gracious. Well, you guys are an amazing crowd. You guys ready to see a wonderful evening of comedy? Yeah, I knew you would be. Comedian Graham Clark recorded at our outdoor comedy festival slash whatever conference, Max FunCon. You can follow him on Twitter at Graham Clark, or you can hear him on the MaximumFun.org podcast, Stop Podcasting Yourself. 
Catch it for free on our website or in iTunes. One of the cool things about having your own conference is that sort of like having your own radio show, you get to book whoever you want. One of my favorite public radio personalities is Brooke Gladstone. She's the producer and one of the hosts of On the Media. What I love about Brooke and On the Media is that they've taken the weakness of public radio relative to other forms of media, which is to say it's a little bit understaffed and maybe can't compete on the news-breaking front with, say, the New York Times and its 500 far-flung correspondents. And she's made that a strength. Essentially, what On the Media is about is more than just the media. It's about contextualizing what's happening in the world, taking the stories that were told and sort of tugging on them, reshaping them until they actually mean something, until they're actually useful information, and a little bit of media reporting of the old school kind as well. I was surprised when I learned that Brooke actually got into media reporting, not because she always wanted to watch The Watchmen or whatever, but basically by accident. Anyway, she was one of our speakers at Max FunCon, and she talked a little bit about that. I never wanted to cover the media ever. Uh, I actually wanted to be an actress. I studied as an actress. I was working in a bar in Washington, D.C. that no longer exists on Columbia Road called Columbia Station in the late 70s when I realized I didn't have the intestinal fortitude to be an actor and a customer at the bar said, you want to write an article? I can get it for you. I mean, basically just wanted to, uh, you know, this was the 70s. And uh, <laughs> so I wrote that article and, uh, you know, and then I started writing all kinds of weird things. It was a very slow, arduous trip through journalism. The first thing that I ever published were a couple of pamphlets for a group called Americans for Salt about the Strategic Arms Limitation Treaty. You know, is America hanging in the strategic balance? Uh, I said, maybe. And, uh, and then there was the, uh, the wonderful first actual staff job I had on the Trade Association magazine of the uh, strip mining industry. And I was fired from that. And uh, then I started working for Current, which was, is a public broadcasting newspaper. Uh, I quit that. I went to Cablevision. I went to a short-lived free weekly in Washington, had my kids, couldn't get a job for a year and a half. And then Scott Simon, who I'd met when I was covering uh, public broadcasting for Current, bumped into my husband, who is also a journalist, when Dizzy Gillespie was donating his trumpet at the Smithsonian and said, what's Brooke doing? And that's how I ended up in public radio. So, you know, and I share that because a lot of people ask me, how do you get into public radio? And I say, this is the way to do it. <laughs> And so I started out as Scott's editor, then I became the editor of All Things Considered when I met my uh, evil twin nemesis and co-host Bob Garfield, who was doing these kind of bizarro uh, Charles Kuralt kind of going around America doing features on people who, you know, freeze-dried their pets and things like that. And I got a sense of humor, but, you know, we would have our tussles editorially, and uh, the most common question ever asked me about the program is, what does that pause by Brooke 
means when he does the credits. And uh, I think that's really, you know, essentially uh, 22 years. I think started editing him in 89. Yeah, about 22 years of uh, dealing with me. And... Uh, <laughs> And all that that entails. So he likes it sometimes, and he doesn't like it other times, and he's a strong personality. And that's all I'll say on the subject of Bob, unless it comes up in the (laughs) Q&A. After a while, uh, I really wanted to... I loved editing, actually, but my husband, who uh, at the time was working for the Boston Globe, uh, was going to get a job at... uh, in the Moscow Bureau, and that was really exciting. So then I started freelancing for NPR as a Moscow correspondent. I did that for three years. When I came back, they gave me the media job because that was in New York, which is where we were moving, and that was the only job, and I was grateful to have it. But did I have a passion for the media? No. I'd covered the business. I'd covered cable. I'd covered public broadcasting. I'd covered the Congress when it, with regard to regulatory issues. I knew it. But, uh, you know, after Russia, what kind of a job is covering the media? I mean, it's all about perceptions and policies and trends. And, you know, where's the meat? You know, where's the juice in that? You keep having to explain the stakes over and over again. You have to explain why it matters, why you should care. And you have to do it sort of implicitly, not just in the words, but also in the tone of your voice and the passion that you feel and the curiosity that you evince. And, you know, sincerity can be a very hard thing to fake. So I forced myself to get interested, and that was fine. And then after six years, I couldn't do it anymore. And for two years, uh, the, uh, ed- the guy who was in charge of programming at WNYC was trying to get me to take over this program uh, on the media, which was kind of a dead shark. It was stuck at 64 stations. There was a terrific host, but he was already doing 10 hours of live radio a week. There was a very dedicated but completely inexperienced staff that didn't know how to do a uh, national program. And uh, I didn't want to do it. And then he said, uh, what if I bring in Bob as co-host? And I went, sure. And so, because I thought if I was stuck, I tried to get onto general assignment uh, at NPR, which was actually a demotion, but they wouldn't do it. And uh, so I thought, well, if I have to do media, then I'm going to do it my own way. It's the Sound of Young America. I'm Jesse Thorne. We're live on tape this week from our big comedy and creativity conference, Max FunCon. You're hearing on the media co-host, Brooke Gladstone. So Brooke has this really amazing new book called The Influencing Machine that's all about how media shapes our lives. But it's not just any book. It's a graphic novel. And so her presentation was, well, graphic. Not in that way, but, you know, it had a lot of pictures. So if you want to enjoy stuff like Brooke's presentation, you're going to have to come to Max FunCon because it don't play on the radio. Luckily, we happen to have an incredibly engaged audience on hand. The people who come to Max FunCon are pretty amazing. So we're going to jump cut to the Q&A. We'll start with this. One of the most important issues that faces any media critic today is the sheer volume of media that faces all of us. Thanks to the Internet, we can get anything. But what we actually do get turns out to be kind of narrow. One of our attendees asks Brooke about... That dichotomy. So many thoughts about that. (laughs) Um, You know, Cass Sunstein, who now works for uh, President Obama, uh, 
wrote a book called Republic 2.0 and a few others, and he gathers a lot of research that suggests the more you talk to people who are like yourself, uh, the more likely your views are to harden and grow more extreme. It's something he calls incestuous amplification. A great phrase. And... uh, it's true. So the question is, is, what does the new technology do to a natural human tendency for birds of a feather to flock together? This is called homophily. How do you defeat homophily? And how does the new media, how do the new media engender homophily? And so, you know, this is a big problem because you can go through and construct a world online in which you will never encounter a fact that you don't embrace or a view that isn't completely in accordance with your worldview. But what the Pew Research Center found is that the more computer literate you are, the more likely you are to go down those rabbit holes where you come bumping against information that you don't normally encounter. Uh, The more likely you are to use social media, the more likely you are to have... uh, to share photos with somebody of a different race and to have among your friends somebody of a different political party. Friends is a bad word for Facebook. I wish it weren't friends because it makes it... Uh, there are plenty of reasons to hate Facebook, but, uh, <laughs> but the assembly of, of people uh, who, you know, who you know and who know you slightly or who you don't know but who are doing interesting things you might hear about is a very useful and interesting thing in terms of defeating the echo chamber, but I wish that they were called loose ties, which is what they are. Uh, They are loose ties. Loose ties, the looser the better, because they're the ones who are going to expose you to stuff that your closed ties are probably, like you, equally uninterested in. Uh, So there's that. But then um, some of you are probably aware of Eli Pariser's new book, The Filter Bubble, which suggests that we are going to be defeated if we aren't very conscious of our behavior by the very structures that are there to serve us. Google now delivers different searches to different people based on their past behavior and past interests. Facebook will cease to send to your news feed people who you never express any curiosity about and never have contact with. Uh, Yahoo News, the New York Times will also tailor their searches to your past behavior. Eli Pariser, who is a creator of MoveOn.com, decided that for his Facebook, he would friend lots of conservatives so he could see what they were doing. And, uh, and he found that gradually they disappeared off of his newsfeed, and this made him very indignant because he had friended them and he wanted to know. But the mysterious algorithm, the ghost in the Facebook machine, had determined that he really, by his behavior, had no interest in these people. So you have to sort of put your, you know, where your money, your money where your mouth is when it comes to seeking out views outside your comfort zone. Um, so I do believe that, you know, this is a tool like any other. It can allow us to hide and filter out the world, or it can allow us to go forth and explore. Uh, but we need to learn by our behavior to evade the barriers that are supposedly put there for our own enjoyment and our own protection. Look, here's the thing. Max FunCon is a comedy and creativity event. So even though this audience member knew that it was sort of the question that Brooke Gladstone must get asked at every appearance she ever does, they were kind enough to ask Brooke, 
what she thinks about Jon Stewart and Stephen Colbert. And luckily for us, Brooke had a really great answer. Yeah. No, I mean, a lot of people have said that, uh, you know, those guys are kind of the uh, truth tellers of the digital age. It's an age uh, that isn't civil. It's an age that isn't polite. It's an age of screaming and yelling. You know, in a way, they sort of demonstrate, although both of them are entirely capable and have on many occasions taken things wildly out of context and uh, misrepresented people's remarks for the sake of a joke. And it's a little worrisome because they are so influential and they are so funny and they are so wise and so smart and such brilliant analysts most of the time. And I think less and less, I think Jon Stewart is... Uh, backing off this notion of, you know, exculpation. You know, I'm just a comedian. It doesn't matter. I think he understands. I think that uh, uh, the march for sanity and or demonstration for sanity and or fear indicated that uh, they understand that they have a real role that they're playing in the culture, and it's one that's very much in sync with this new age of fragmentation and and advocacy. I think they demonstrate to a large extent that that it is entirely possible to be an advocate and to still be fair and to deal honestly with information Uh, which they frequently do. I just wish it weren't so spotty because, you know, you have to sort of... But it's always funny. And so it does make you care. And that's important. I think that caring is number one. He makes you care. He, He... When he's dealing with really important issues, he almost always gets it right. It's just when people say embarrassing things and stuff, he doesn't always put the context in. Uh... So the joke stuff, you know, don't consider it facts and, you, and you're okay. Apply your skepticism. These guys augur what the next uh, generation of information is going to be like. Uh, a lot of people, when we started out, and I, and I say this uh, with profound humility, used to compare us to The Daily Show, not because we were funny, but because back when we started out, Everything was so tight that we seemed so loose in comparison. I think that that uh, uh, equation with The Daily Show and uh, is, is, in fact, this was even before Colbert. That's how far back it goes. Uh, the media, the tone of the media in general has changed so radically that I don't think, you know, people would say that. But they did at the beginning, and it was simply just that we believed that disclosure is the new, that disclosure and transparency are the new objectivity Explain. You don't even have to explain. Show how you feel. Then people can take that into account. Just like a movie reviewer, you know, they're always going to hate a movie by this kind of person, so you won't trust them on this, but you'll trust them on other things. Just let them get to know you. They know who you are. They know what your biases are. They'll take things on the topic where you disagree with that person with a grain of salt. And there is honesty. That's better than objectivity, which, mean, which really boils down to trust me. Brooke Gladstone is the co-host of NPR and WNYC's On the Media. You can find the show online at onthemedia.org, where you can grab it by podcast, or you can find it on your local public radio station. She also has a great comic book on the media called The Influencing Machine. It's about the history of mass media and how it affects our daily lives. 
After a break, Lee Unkrich, the Oscar-winning director of Toy Story 3, will talk about how the whole thing came together. Plus, comedian Maria Bamford will treat celebrity magazines as a kind of gospel. It's the sound of young America. This week, live on tape from Max FunCon. For MaximumFun.org and PRI, Public Radio International. Production of The Sound of Young America is supported in part by Ask Metafilter. Thousands of life's little questions answered online at ask.metafilter.com. Welcome back. It's the Sound of Young America. I'm Jesse Thorne. This week, we're sharing highlights from 2011's Max FunCon. Next up, the great Maria Bamford. I call her the great Maria Bamford because I genuinely believe that Maria is one of the, gosh, two, three best stand-up comedians working today. She has this style that at first seems completely ridiculous. I mean, she does these big outrageous voices but then you realize how heartfelt and moving and internal and socially critical the comedy that's actually coming out of these crazy voices is i invited maria to the first max FunCon a few years ago and and even though it's sort of incumbent upon me to make sure that we have different acts performing every year maria had such a good time the first year that she offered to come back the second year and even even not perform if we didn't want her to perform and just lead a workshop. So now she comes every year and leads a workshop for comedians of every level of expertise. I think last year they set up a phalanx of fake hecklers for uh, the aspiring comedians to take down. It's a really amazing thing. Anyway, here she is performing some of her brilliant stand-up comedy on our mountain stage at Max FunCon. She kicks things off with an apology to anyone who might be religious in the audience. Um, it, this is really a lot of fun. I'm having a great time. Thank you very much for, uh, you know, the whole thing. Um, so uh, I know, I don't think here many people here are religious, but if you are, please just rest in the glory that I am wrong. I, uh, I've been trying to, I've been trying to believe in God because I know it feels good. Uh... This is what I think it feels like. You know when you're in a third world shantytown at midnight and you're terrified, but then off in the distance you see the glowing logo of an international conglomerate and you just feel like, everything's going to be okay. 
someone's looking out for me. <laughs> Perhaps we all need to find the Exxon within. Uh, my mom always says, honey, whatever you think about all the time, that is what you worship. Oh. That's the case. I'd like everyone to pop open their Diet Coke cans. Turn to page 37, other people magazines. In this holy scripture, we read the parable of Miss Kirstie Alley. Once on television, then lost to pop culture. Now welcome back into the zeitgeist again, and the worst dress shall be the best dress, and the best dress shall be the worst dress. <laughs> Uh, of course I worship celebrities. Their moods create the weather. <laughs> I'm just a tiny, frightened animal. Of course I'm going to look towards the most powerful and fertile of our species for information on how to survive. We need to find out what Jennifer Aniston is doing because she's a strong, sexy monkey. She's going to tell us where all the bananas are located. She was quoted as saying recently, I always say don't make plans, make options. That is a pretty big piece of fruit. I'm going to be gnawing on that rind of Talmudic poetry for a couple of months. Plans, make options, don't make plans, don't make plans, make ch- don't commit to it. Um... I know it's, uh, it's end of the season. Uh, is anyone here thinking of suicide? Oh, don't do it. Don't do it. I get so mad at people who do that. I get so mad at them. Oh, but I'm a waste of space and I'm a burden. That also describes the Grand Canyon. Uh, why don't you have friends and family take pictures of you from a safe distance? Revel in your majestic profile. Oh, but I owe people a lot of money and everybody hates me. Hello, most of Europe. (laughs) Anyways, thank you guys so much. Thanks a lot. The hilarious Maria Bamford. She's online at mariabamford.com. Her latest album, which you should just run out and get because it's brilliant, is called Unwanted Thought Syndrome. It's the Sound of Young America. I'm Jesse Thorne. This week's show was recorded live at our Comedy and Creativity Sleepaway Camp, Max FunCon, which we hold every year here in Southern California. When you're a public radio host and you give out your email address on the air, uh, you get a lot of emails. And it's often people pitching their project. And, you know, uh, I think it's really cool that people have, a, you know, published their own novel or, or made their own CD. But it, it's probably not going to end up on the air here on The Sound of Young America. But once in a while, I'll get an email that really shocks me. And uh, uh, two years or so ago, we did uh, uh, an episode of The Sound of Young America where I interviewed the author of a book about the history of Pixar Animation Studios. And it was a great interview. I had a lot of fun, and it was really cool to talk about, you know, what I think is one of the most remarkable cultural forces in America right now. 
And I got this email the next week uh, from uh, a Pixar.com email address, and it said, Dear Mr. Thorne, I, I enjoy listening to your show. I, I work at Pixar Animation Studios, so, uh, and I heard your story about Pixar. If you ever want an inside perspective from somebody who actually works there, I'd be happy to provide it. And the name at the bottom was Lee Unkrich. And I didn't know who Lee Unkrich was, so I googled Lee Unkrich. And I came to find out that he wasn't what I had imagined, which was, you know, maybe like a guy whose job it is to, you know, fill in textures on animated regions or or something like that. He was actually the co-director of several of Pixar's most acclaimed films and the director of uh, Pixar's upcoming tentpole film, Toy Story 3. So I knew that I had to become best friends with Lee Ungrich. And one of my techniques was to invite him to Max FunCon to have a conversation with another good friend of mine, the comedian and writer John Hodgman. So let's go to the stage at Max FunCon. John Hodgman started out by congratulating Lee on the success of Toy Story 3, which was a billion-dollar earner and won him an Oscar. So congratulations, but also uh, I hope I want to talk a little bit about how how you did it, because it seems so effortless. And people just think, okay, you take these toys and you get them demonically possessed so they walk <laughs> around and you fill them doing their amazing things. But there's, there's more to it than that, isn't there? Uh, kind of. Um, yeah, I mean, everything that you felt, I felt, you know, times a thousand. When uh, it was about five and a half years ago that John Lasseter who directed the first Toy Story and is the creative um, uh, head of, of Pixar, turned to me and asked me to direct Toy Story 3. And you had edited Toy Story 1? Yeah, just a super quick background. I edited the first Toy Story. I co-directed the second Toy Story. Mm-hmm. I co-directed Finding Nemo and Monsters, Inc. Okay, you're getting braggy now. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I felt like I was the right person to do it, but yeah. um, the moment he asked me, I was, I was flattered at first, and... Um, excited and then uh, I went home and and uh, told my wife and immediately wanted to start vomiting yeah and to be honest I spent the first two and two years of the movie every single morning waking up wanting to throw up really literally feeling nauseated literally literally nauseated because I felt the crushing pressure of um, not only making a new Pixar film you know which would be enough enough and is enough for anybody it would be enough for me but to make um, to make a sequel to a movie that a lot of people like a lot, not only like a lot, but grew up on. Sure. I mean, you guys are, a lot of you guys are young. Like, so many of you were, like, what, like 10 years old, 9 years old when Toy Story came out in 95, I'd say, a lot of you. Yeah. Um, so, I, I mean, I would come to work sometimes. I, I, I was. <laughs> I would come to work sometimes, and there would be voice messages on my, my, voice, my, uh, my office phone saying, hey, Lee, um, listen. I heard you're directing Toy Story 3, and I just wanted to let you know, don't f*** it up. Who was leaving these messages? Strangers? Random, random people. Whoa. This, this was the movie of my childhood. Uh, whatever you do, make it, uh, give it a good story, and don't f*** it up. And that was basically the advice, and I got multiple phone calls like that. So I had that. I, I'm concerned. Uh, c- colleagues? In the industry or people who no, just no, got no, your no. number these are, these are random people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they say, and hey, Lee. They don't say, hey, Mr. Unkridge? No, hey, Lee. Right. But, see, this was also the problem with me getting on to Twitter and, and, and sure. doing all that yeah. is that, uh, you know, I suddenly uh, opened myself right. up to a lot of unsolicited advice. Welcome to the creep zone. 
population trolls. <laughs> but the thing that was interesting is that we weren't aware of when we started crafting the story right. was that was this whole idea because it had been so many years since we made Toy Story 2 that the kids who grew up on the first few movies were now finishing high school or heading off to college or even in some cases starting families of their own. And um, we just hadn't thought about that because for us, you know, the time has gone very quickly. Well, I would imagine that the trick at, at first is, all right, I have this assignment. Now I've got to uh, come up with and work with my colleagues to come up with an authentic real story that we can tell. Well, the last thing we wanted meeting. was to make, you know, like the, good, the, the bad news bears go to Japan. You know, that kind of a sequel. <laughs> and there are plenty of those. Um, in fact, you know, when I started this, I, I, when we made Toy Story 2, we, we knew that, um, that we had a tough road to hoe and that there were just really very few good sequels. Right. You know, you could say The Godfather 2 is as good as or better than the first Godfather. Uh, Empire Strikes Back is, uh, is, is a great film. Um, and then it, uh, it kind of stops there. I mean, people right. have different opinions, but what's that? <laughs> what? Babe, pig in the city. That's we'll have to agree that's to disagree. Jesse, Jesse's favorite. Um, e- Evil Dead Two. Terminator Two. Yeah, there, 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 are a few yeah. out there. Seems like there are a lot of them, actually. <laughs> but how many good third films are there? That was the question. Yeah, right. And when I tried to do that, I couldn't come up with any. The only Army one that darkness. I the o- what? <laughs> Stop. All right. In my mind, when I looked at uh, the, the Lord of the Rings films, you know, mm-hmm. there, you know, there was a third film that, that was worthy of sitting alongside the first two, but that was entirely that, unfair that, because, because it's one, it wasn't a, it, it it's wasn't not. a trilogy. It's not. It's one story one being story. told over three films. And for me, that was kind of my personal epiphany was that I, I, we needed to come up with a story. We needed to craft something that felt like um, not just a random sequel of the toys off having a wacky adventure, but right. that there was some cohesiveness and, and, and you know, tell a story that felt like from day one we had well, always planned on making the three films. And at the end of Toy Story 2, spoiler alert, um, there, it ends on a very poignant note where you know, Buzz and Woody are now fully aware that this uh, is going to end, that this paradise of childhood will end, and... There will be a big change in their lives when that happens. And they talk about it, and it feels like... But they kind of put it off, and yeah. they say, you know what, but we have each other for now, and, right. and that's good enough. That's the perfect ending to the whole series, right? Because <laughs> you've, you've already set up what must happen in the third if you're going to do it, and what must happen in the third is going to be heartbreaking mm-hmm. and essentially a meditation on mortality, which I know children love it, but how are you going to get... <laughs> How are you going to break that story so that it has enough uh, fart jokes in it for adults? <laughs> how do you break the four quadrants on that? <laughs> or why? Or you know, but how how did you? What, what were the breakthroughs in the story? But that you know, with the like challenge, the challenges for us were always making it work for adults because right. we always we know kids are going to be a part of our audience it's a given sure but um and and i know the things that make kids laugh i've got three kids i know you know if someone gets hit in the butt instant laughter of right course. i mean there are any number of things that you can just do and kids will like the the tough audiences are the adults of course because they want something meaningful they want something that's genuinely funny to them and and well, maybe adults that see your movies yes. <laughs> <laughs> um 
So in my mind, you know, the key for us unlocking the third film was that, you know, in life, we know that we're going to have to face a lot of things later in life. They're going to happen. They're inevitable. And it's easy to say, oh, you know, uh, you know, I know my parents are going to pass away at some point. But you know what? I have them here now. I'm going to enjoy every day. But of course, when you hit that day, that is an entirely new thing that you need to deal with. And it just seemed emotionally ripe for us to, to tell a story at that point where the toys were on the verge of becoming obsolete and were losing their families and right. maybe were going to be cast to the winds. But there aren't many... There aren't many movies that are going to tackle that full on the way Toy Story 3 does. Do you know what I mean? Do you most mean like in a, li- like in a live that. action film? In a live action film, for example. Most, most stories will stop at, I know this is going to happen, but I'm going to enjoy every day as it is. Which is the comforting fiction we tell ourselves every day in order to continue to live without screaming. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Yes. So, uh, so I, I, well, I, this isn't even a question, but I just think it was an incredibly brave thing to do. And... I, well, but it I seemed hate like you the, for making me feel that. <laughs> it, it, it just seemed like the only worthy thing to do. Of course. Because otherwise we, we just, there was no point in doing it. Precisely. Um, so our challenge then was to keep it funny because we felt like we had plenty of heavy stuff to deal with in the movie. And I hired a great um, screenwriter, Michael Arndt, who wrote Little Miss Sunshine. And, um, Oscar winner. Oscar winner yeah. for Little Miss Sunshine. And he, um, you know, he was, he, he's a great structure person. He's, he's very passionate about what he does. And he, 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 a lot of people thought it was an odd choice for us to be bringing in to, to create ostensibly a, you know, a family film. Um, but it was, I, I think it was a perfect choice. And, um, and then you know, our challenge ultimately was to just make sure that it was funny enough and that we could make a film that would appeal to everybody and not just adults because we would have failed if we had done that. In, in many ways, animation is, I mean, all filmmaking is collaborative, but... There are so many people who are at work uh, really having the hands-on creative uh, expression in the film. Um, and in particular, story at Pixar, when you guys work on the story, mm-hmm. does Michael Arndt just uh, go and, and go up into a garret and work on it on his own? What is your involvement? And how do you uh, collaborate without making it uh, a committee, you know, written by committee sort of thing? Right. Well, um, in the case of Toy Story 3, we started the whole process by going away to a cabin in the woods on a lake, and um, much, unlike, much like this place. And we got the core people who had come up with the original Toy Story together, and we locked ourselves away for two days with no phone calls and no meetings. And we, we, we talked long and hard about what we wanted a third Toy Story to be. And by the end of the first day, we had absolutely nothing mm-hmm. at all. I mean, it was, it was hopeless. And so we decided, well, let's watch Toy Story and Toy Story 2 again and see um, – See if that can spark something because none of us had seen them in years. Yeah, I was going to ask, like, how long had it been? It had, it had been quite a few years, but we didn't have a TV or anything there. So if you can imagine John Lasseter and Pete Doctor and all of us literally huddled around a laptop on the floor wow. watching a film like the way it should not be seen. But uh, so we watched Toy Story, Toy Story 2, and at the end of that, we were even more depressed because those films are pretty good. Yeah. And who were we to think that we could come up with a third one? But we came back the next day and thought, you know, if anyone's going to do it, we are because we made those movies after all. And so um, we started, you know, dredging up some old ideas that we'd had from the first movies. We, we had long had this idea about a kind of a, an evil teddy bear character and um, who was pink and smelled like strawberries. And, uh, you know, we talked about where the film should be set, and we, and we decided, you know, it has to be Andy growing up. There's no other time to tell this that's not going to make this just some arbitrary story that we're telling. So a lot of those things started clicking into place. Uh, we had an ending, which 
normally you don't have an ending. And we, we felt like we had an ending that we really loved. And uh, it was at that point that I started working with Michael. Arndt. Okay. And he started writing. And um, it was interesting, that writing process, Michael had been used to, um, you know, Little Miss Sunshine was his first produced screenplay. And he was very used to locking himself away in his little apartment in Brooklyn for years at a time, writing and not showing it to anybody. And now so he was did in you the situation. Guys, did you guys have to replicate his apartment in Brooklyn at, <laughs> at Pixar? No, we gave him a very lovely loft in San Francisco, which uh, you know he then stayed in for six years and didn't want to leave. Um, but uh, do you need me to go in and get him out? <laughs> <laughs> he's he's safely ensconced back in Brooklyn now oh, again. Okay. Good. Um, anyway. Um, uh, I wanted to see what he was writing. We couldn't afford to have him go off and write for six months and then come back to me. And so he had to step outside of his comfort zone and start showing his work to me. As it, as Almost it on a daily basis, right. he would hand pages to me. And it was, you know, he had to trust me, of course. And we That's built that trust pretty quickly. And um, it, it started to get intoxicating, I think, for him to get some immediate feedback that he trusted. We wouldn't always agree. I mean, we had a lot of, like, knockdown, you know, arguments about, uh, about things. Can but, you say about... One thing? Um, I don't mean to put you on the spot, but if it comes up Do you want to hear later. one stupid thing that we argued about all the way to the end of the movie? Not really. Um, <laughs> my, oh, my, yes, please. Mike, one of Michael's favorite movies is Drugstore Cowboy. Sure. And um, there's... There was a there's a there's a place in the movie where the toys are trying to figure out how to get out of this daycare classroom, right. and they look up at a transom, and um, I know, <laughs> and, uh, and and Buzz kind of basically signals, uh, you know, we need to go up there. Uh, you know, has anybody noticed that transom? And then he had Rex uh, walk up and say, "What's a transom, Buzz?" Which is a line right out of uh, of Drugstore Cowboy, mm-hmm. and um, you know, I you know, he was convinced that it was going to kill. <laughs> That's right, because I know that movie, and the minute you said transom, I knew exactly the scene that you're yeah. talking about. But I would—I feel like I've never heard that line before in my life. Yeah, and you know, but you would have gone over great with the kids. Yeah, I mean, oh yeah, right. Know, well, because they've all seen that. Maybe movie. if Rex had, they've all seen Drugstore the Cowboy, and they love it. Right. So I so I wouldn't let him put it in the movie, and I kept cutting it out. But literally till the premiere, he he uh, I, I, he was miffed that that I hadn't put the line in the movie. Oh, I hope he got over it. He kept putting it back in the script. He would do rewrites, and then would show up in the script again because I think he thought maybe at some point I wouldn't notice that it was back. Anyway, you know I I, I have stuff um, that I brought to show as well. We okay. Sure I have to break in, in here. But, Here's um, the thing: I had this conversation with Lee about. What things we were allowed to record and disseminate and what things were, quote unquote, just for us. And we're getting into the part of his presentation where he gets into the really cool, really secret stuff that was only for people at Max FunCon. And I hate to disappoint you, but you had to be there. You can follow Lee Unkrich on Twitter at Lee Unkrich. And if by some weird and bizarre chance you haven't seen Toy Story 3 yet you should see it because it's totally amazing I cried I'm not going to lie to you I'm afraid of death When we book Max FunCon, we try and get all different kinds of comedians, but we usually focus on comedians who live and work in the Los Angeles area, because frankly, that way we don't have to buy them airplane tickets. But I got an email from one of our biggest supporters, this lady named Rebecca, and she said, 
if there's anyone in the UK that you might like to bring in for Max FunCon, but you hadn't considered because, you know, you'd have to pay for their plane tickets, maybe you should consider them and I could pay for their flight. So I did. I sat down and thought about it and thought, of all these great comedians in the UK, who would be the coolest to bring to Max FunCon? And I settled on this amazing comedian named Josie Long. She's won all kinds of awards in England, although she's barely performed here in the United States. She's kind of loopy and infinitely charming and, if you ask me, pretty brilliantly hilarious. She did a pretty big set on the stage of Max FunCon, but uh, I wanted to share with you this one bit that she did. I I think it's pretty typical of the high-concept, high-insanity work that she does on stage. Here she is reading letters written by Charles Darwin from his expedition to the Galapagos Islands to his friend Henslow. Okay, so um, the first thing I thought I'd do is these letters of Charles Darwin, I've written them out in this excellent free notebook. Um, Basically, um, when he did his voyage uh, around uh, the Galapagos Islands to kind of get information for his theory of evolution, uh, which is real, and... um, uh, (laughs) Sorry. Um, uh, He was... He wrote all these letters to his friend Henslow, and what I love about them is they come across just... He comes across as such a fun guy, and I thought I'd read it just because I genuinely find it quite inspiring, and so here we go. Um, oh, and uh, so he's writing to his friend Henslow, and that's, like, all you need to know, really. Okay. January 25th. My dear Henslow, this afternoon we docked at a new island, and as we disembarked the vessel, I noticed the turtle... Upon its back were markings so unusual that I remarked upon them to my guide, and he informed me that these turtles were native to this island and this island only. So I ate it. January 31st. My dear Henslow, this morning I sat at the water's edge writing my journal, and as I wrote furiously, in the corner of my eye, I chanced upon a salamander. Such a great beast was he, some two full metres in length. He plodded along the water's edge. The beast was so fantastic that I hoped I could get a better look of it. But, thought I, The beast will surely not come close to me. Then, to my utter consternation, the beast began walking towards me. Surely, thought I, it should be too scared to approach me any closer. But then, to my consternation, it came completely next to me so that I could then touch its head, leg and tail. So I wound it into the sea. After much coughing and spluttering, the beast recovered itself and, cautiously, made its way back to shore. Surely, thought I, such a beast shall not approach me again. But, then, to my increasing amazement, the beast began to approach me a second time. 
plodding steadily and surely until again it allowed within my arm's reach and then again allowed me to touch its head, leg and tail. So I wanged it into the sea again. Right, this time it was like harder than the first time. If you can imagine the first time, like seven out of ten wang, like, whoa, whatever, I wanged it, you know. This time it was like, whoa! And then it came back out again. I was like, oh, you want some more, little man? Oh, I got this backed up till Christmas, little man. Look, look me in the eyes if you got beef. Look me right in the eyes. You scared of this? Come all up in my face. I'm not afraid of this. Wang, wang, wang. <laughs> And then I ate it. <laughs> Josie Long, you can catch her on Twitter at Josie Long or find her online at JosieLong.com. This week on the show, it's highlights from our annual creativity and comedy conference, Max FunCon. When we come back, we'll have some comedy from the great Greg Barrent talking about how distinctly uncool he is. It's the Sound of Young America from MaximumFun.org and PRI, Public Radio International. Production of The Sound of Young America is supported in part by Ask Metafilter. Thousands of life's little questions answered online at ask.metafilter.com. It's the Sound of Young America. I'm Jesse Thorne. This week on this show, highlights from the 2011 Max FunCon. This is our admittedly kind of odd creativity, comedy, festival, conference, convocation that we hold up at this weird abandoned summer camp in the mountains of Southern California. Maybe that's overselling it. The, the camp is actually kind of nice. We have a great stand-up comedy show at Max FunCon every year, and every year I invite some comedians I know and like to come do the show. This year I was thinking about who should be on it, and I came up with Greg Barrett, and I sent him an email that said, hey, I do this, and just like on the radio here, I have a hard time explaining what Max FunCon is in an email. I said, like, I do this kind of conference of friendship and jokes and thinking about things and it's in the mountains and there's a lake and everyone sleeps in something called a condo lay and there's a s'mores roast and would you come be a comedian at it and i don't think 90 seconds had passed before i got an email back from greg barrett that said absolutely Greg is a guy who has had this amazing career. I mean, he wrote this best-selling relationship book that got him on Oprah and got him his own daytime talk show completely unexpectedly. Um, he has this secondary career in rock and roll music, and, and he has that bearing of a guy that loves to rock and, and, and is really self-possessed, but, it, but it's absolutely positively a trick. At the core of his being, Greg Barrett is... 
like almost all comedians, I'll say it, uncool. Anyway, let's go to the outdoor amphitheater stage of Max FunCon and comedian Greg Barron, who, by the way, I should mention, does use a little bit of salty language in this stand-up comedy set. So if you've got sensitive ears, now might be a good time to uh, change to the old classical station. Greg Barron at Max FunCon. Genuinely, I, I am genuinely, uh, I was uh, surprised and delighted to be asked to do this. I, uh, I played football in high school. And uh, uh, just to share that experience with you briefly, uh, this is the only compliment I got in four years of high school football. I was a senior, and it was halftime of a game that we were losing. I was a second-string fullback. Is the only compliment I got in four years of high school football. So the coach gets us out in the locker room, and he's furious, and we're all in there. And uh, my uniform is clean. <laughs> and the coach comes in, and he goes, uh, he's talking about the other fullback. Ken Flax is his name. Ken uh, was an athlete, went on to throw the hammer in the Olympics. But on this particular day, his game was not up to par. And the coach comes in the locker room, and he goes, uh, we got a guy out here. Number 44, Ken Flax, running like a damn. <laughs> we got guys like Greg Barrett here who work hard all week, who will never see the field. <laughs> right? And I didn't quite get it at first because he hadn't said my name before, so, and it just felt like it was supposed to be a compliment. So I was like, yes! What? <laughs> I'm a fan, too. I'm a fan. I think that's what makes this an interesting group of people is that we love, but you know what? Love <laughs> gently. Stop with your demands. Stop. I, I want to read you a review of a, of a Vampire Weekend. I feel like this is too, we're too much like this. This is why, this is why a great art isn't created because um, what you do is you love something and then you mind the artist into never being able to create again with your damn expectations. Um, and remember, I know this is hard to remember, but the music that you love and the movies you like there and the comedy, all made by the people. Fallible human disasters. So please... I stumbled across this. I think it's the most perfect example of what I'm talking about. So it's uh, for rec- the last record uh, that uh, uh, they put out, their second record called Contra. And I, I'm, not a, I'm not a fan necessarily, but I don't, I don't dislike. I just, I like bands that seem like they want to f- somebody. <laughs> just do some f- just some, you know what I mean? But that's me. I'm a meathead and I like it, you know, just, anyway. Uh, um, oh, damn it. Where is it? Did I lose it? There it is. Okay. So here's the review. And this was on iTunes. Uh, and I'm also a guy that, like, I don't understand. A, 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 a review for me just needs to have the words f***ing and awesome and written in caps. And awesome has to be misspelled. So this is of uh, the, the record uh, Contra. Uh, this guy says, uh, I was afraid right off the bat that this was going to be 11 tracks of Vampire Weekend trying to sound like Vampire Weekend. Maybe I've lost the thread, but if you liked Vampire, if you liked Vampire Weekend, it seems like when going for a second Vampire Weekend experience, you would want, like you don't have a Coke and go, I enjoyed this, but the next time I have this, it better taste like a can of bees. I want to be surprised and a little bit hurt. Oh, what is it? Oh. I don't want another can of Coke. 
So that's what he says. He says he was hoping that it wouldn't sound like the band that he likes. He likes the band. He does not want their record to sound like the band that he likes. But he was pleased to find... Now, this is interesting. He was pleased to find that they've still got it. In fact, if anything, I want to find him, and I don't want to... I don't, I don't want to see the life go out of his... I don't want to... I don't... I'm not saying... If anything, they sound more like themselves than they did the last time. How, how does one create in that environment? My name's Greg Barron. You guys have been great. Thank you so much. Thank you, Jesse. Thanks, everybody. Comedian Greg Barrett performing live at Max FunCon. You can find him online at gregbarrett.com where you can get the digital version of his brand new album, Original Uncool. It's coming out on CD soon. This week on The Sound of Young America, highlights from Max FunCon, our annual comedy and creativity conference held in the woods of Southern California. Um... Max FunCon is a safe space for comedy. It is a space where you can do something that is amazing and sublime without worrying about whether people will get it. This is one of those things. In our stand-up comedy lineup, we presented not just some of the most accomplished, quote-unquote, alternative comics in America, but also one of America's most accomplished and beloved Road Comics. His name, Jerry O'Hearn. How's everybody doing tonight? I don't know. I don't know, you know. I don't know. All this stuff that's going on in the world today? You gotta be kidding me. You gotta be kidding me. I mean, no kidding. At this point, it really is like, excuse me, what? I'm sorry, What? I mean, unbelievable. I mean, I'm sorry, but the last time I checked, that kind of thing was not supposed to be going on. Okay, I'm sorry, but I did not sign off on that, okay? No, thank you. Unbelievable, right? I mean, it's just crazy. You know what I would like to know? Where is it written that this kind of thing is supposed to be happening? Because I didn't get that memo. I didn't see that one. I mean, it's unbelievable at this point. It really is crazy. It's like you got guys over here going, hey, check this out. And guys over here going, what do you think? And I'm like, whoa! Give me a break! No, thank you! Unbelievable. You know, what are you going to do, you know? What are you going to do? That's crazy. Oh my God. Married people here tonight? Married people? Yeah. Okay. True story. The other day, I'm just hanging out. You know, I'm just doing my thing. You know, I'm not trying to do anything, right? <laughs> Next thing I know, it's like this. I go, hey. You know, just, she goes, hey. You know, I got an idea. <laughs> what are you supposed to do in that situation? 
What do you, you can't win? It's unbelievable. I mean, come on. What do I look like? You gotta be kidding. Do I have a sign on my back at this point? I mean, come on. It's crazy. I mean, it's really crazy. You know what I mean? You know, and it would be one thing if anybody had ever said to me, you know, you know, hey, one day it's gonna be like this, you know, but nothing, nobody ever prepared me for this. Jesus Christ. All right, I, I don't know about you, but uh, I try not to go to those types of places if I can help it, okay? So it's not my thing, okay? But the other day, I'm just hanging out. God goes, oh, please, you know, please. Oh, fine. I'm not there two seconds before some guy comes up and goes, oh, sorry, sir, but you know how it is, and it's like this. Like, Excuse me? What is it, a long time ago? It is now! And this kind of crap is going on, it's now! You guys have been great. Have a wonderful time at the thing. Thank you so much. Jerry O'Hearn, obviously, I hope, a character portrayed by Andy Daly, one of the funniest men in America. You can find him online at andydaly.com or you can follow him on Twitter at TV's Andy Daly. He's actually in Transformers 3, believe it or not, so I guess you can go out and see him in that. (laughs) Hey, listen, that's our time for another Sound of Young America program. If you're interested in Max FunCon, visit us online at maxfuncon.com and hop on the mailing list so you can find out when we open registration for next year's because it always fills up really, really quick. But we have some ambitious plans for next year, so just go to maxfuncon.com and you can find out more information there. It's a really... It's a really magical thing. Hey, listen, I am at a really important time in my life. As I record this, my wife is due to have our first child in three days. So I'm going on paternity leave. Luckily, we have some really amazing guest hosts standing at the ready to fill in for me over the next month or so. Uh, Who have we got? Well, uh, for one thing, John Hodgman, who you heard on this week's program, the brilliant comedian and writer. He'll be filling in for me for a week. Janet Varney, the actress and comedian and uh, co-host of TBS's Dinner and a Movie, one of the funniest people I know. Uh, She's going to be filling in. Shenny Chardon from uh, boingboing.net, one of the Internet's most popular blogs. And uh, she is also a a hilarious and and brilliant and really has her finger on the pulse of, of digital culture. We've got Dave Holmes coming in. He's the host of like six different television shows. Um, Who am I forgetting? Oh, Mike Jordan, Jesse Go co-host, Jordan Morris. He's going to be hosting a program. Um, Look, it's going to be a lot of fun. The next month on The Sound of Young America, way cool guest hosts while I sit at home and enjoy the miracle of life. So keep it locked right here. We'll see you next time on The Sound of Young America. 